Here is one of a series of talks by spiritual leader Lola McDowell Lee, spanning two decades from the early 70s through the 90s. Lola was a Zen Roshi, whose Rinzai lineage included Dr. Henry Platov and renowned Zen master Shigetsu Sasaki. Lola was a religious scholar as well as an ordained Christian minister. While the talks are focused mainly on Zen and Buddhism, Lola drew on many spiritual traditions, including those of Jesus, Plato, Lao Tzu, the Hindu Vedas, Meister Eckhart, and Gurdjieff. The Master Fugai was considered very wise and generous, and yet he was the most severe both with himself and his disciples. He went to the mountains to sit in meditation. He lived in a cave, and when he was hungry, he went to the village for supplies. Used to be the custom. Huh? <clears throat> Used to be that um, after they, after a person, a monk, had achieved his enlightenment. He went to the mountains and lived for another, some of them say 30 years. Then they were ready to teach. <clears throat> One day, a monk called Bundo, attracted by Fugai's austerities, called at the cave and asked to stay the night. <clears throat> the master seemed happy to put him up, and the next morning prepared rice rule for him. Not having an extra bowl, he went out and returned with a skull that he found lying near a tomb. He filled it with gruel and offered it to Mundo. and the guest refused to touch it, and he stared at Fugai as if he had gone mad. And at this, Fugai became furious and drove him out of the cave with blows. Fool! he shouted after him. How can you, with your worldly notions of filth and purity, think yourself a Buddhist? Well, some months later, the master Tetsugai visited him and told him that he thought it was a great pity that he had forsaken the world. <coughs> Fugai laughed. <laughs> you know, it is easy enough to forsake the world. The difficult thing is that then to become a true Buddhist. Hmm? Or we can use the word Christian to become a true Christian. Uh, however you want it. To become the true man. How's that? Yeah. <clears throat> now we do hear it often. It is said that truth, that is religious truth, is one. 
uh, from the top of the mountain, let us say that the whole thing is, is uh, likened to a trek up the mountain. Uh, from the top of the mountain, the view is the same for all, it is said. However, we do climb the mountain in different ways. Some people are slow, some people are slower, some people are slowest. You don't really spring up that mountain ever, you know. So are people have a difficult time of it, or a more difficult time of it, or a most difficult time of it. <laughs> hmm? Yeah. <clears throat> Now, basically, the ways can be uh, divided. Uh, the way one goes up the mountain can be divided into uh, three categories, <clears throat> three ways. Either you approach the truth through the heart, that is, through devotion, or you approach the truth through the mind, the head. Hmm? This is a polarity. And sitting as we do, you know, we call this kind of a meditation, Raja Yoga, which is out of India, where, of course, Buddha was from, who lived in India. And this is the unity of the head and the heart. So you have the head and the heart, or the two together. Hmm? Three ways. there another way? <clears throat> now, the Eastern uh, Orthodox Christianity, the Eastern Catholic Church, is the Russian, the Greek, the Syrian, Byzantine, that branch. They broke off from the uh, uh, the, what is called the Western Catholic or the Roman Catholic Church and uh, because they didn't want to follow the Pope. And way early on. You know. But the Eastern Catholic Church today encompasses um, the Copts, which are out of Egypt, the Nestorians, and the Jacobites. And there's a couple other little ones in there. The Jacobites are the Syrian branch. <clears throat> the Copts, the ancient Egyptians, and the Nestorians, uh, they were Persians. And um, some of them lived in India, and some of them lived there around the Mediterranean. Um, but altogether, they made a pilgrimage into China, and uh, where they learned to meditate on the energy garden, uh, on the Hara. Yeah. And there was an uprising in China, and so they all fled and returned to the Mediterranean area. And here, it wasn't long before they earned the nickname of the belly gazers. And so being part of the, the Eastern, this is how the Eastern monks then began to pick this up. Some of there's some historians still around. They also, when they started to learn to meditate, they would, 
at the tip of the nose or at the bridge of the nose. And they had a nickname for that too, which eludes me at the moment. You know, just to sit there and see that, that takes the focus away from out there, but it doesn't leave you in a, in a dark world. It just, you're just there and then it goes from there into the belly. Hmm? No. Now, the monks who followed this uh, were called the hesychasts. And that simply means the way of stillness. And their concern in the whole thing, their concern was awakening, is still awakening, and is still the experience the wanting, the desire of having the experience of divine truth. And as the monks go to live on Mount Athos there in Greece, they, as they start this, they do receive an initiation and they go through what is called the initiatory process, which is where they begin to follow, which the Egyptians had. Hmm? Now, there uh, uh, practices are more severe than ours but they follow a kind of a similar pattern just in the meditation thing. But the uh, Eastern Church, Western Church, and the Buddhist Church, they all have what we term a rosary. Now, in Buddhism, they call it something else. But, and they, all the rosaries have 108 beads of Buddhism, Eastern and Western. They have 108 beads. So now <clears throat> the hesychasts, when they uh, come together like this, uh, and, and uh, they stand, they're never everybody's sitting, they stand, and the floors are stone. They stand there, and they do the complete prostration that flat out on the ground, flat out and up, and flat out and up. One for each bead, all in unison, you know. You know, difficult. So, I mean, even in, uh, in Zen, they don't do it 108 times. They do it three times. We do it three times. You want to do it 108 times? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Now, <clears throat> the monks there at Mount Athos, I'm going to read you a little something. They asked <clears throat> the father there in charge, who at that time was Abba Agathon, Abba, his father, Abba Agathon. <clears throat> what is the virtue that requires the greatest effort? What do you do that you consider is the most good that requires the greatest effort? <clears throat> you all have an answer for yourself? Abba Agathon answered, forgive me, but I think there is no labor greater than that of prayer 
to God. And he encompasses in that contemplation and meditation. There is no greater effort. Whatever work a man undertakes, if he perseveres, he will attain rest. But prayer, this contemplation, the meditation, is warfare to the last breath. The fidelity, the trueness, the trueness to it that one must have, which is put very simply, is keeping the mind and the heart united in God in order to do his way. And this is the whole content of the way. All obedience, all humility, all scripture are for that end only. <clears throat> to hold a focus so strongly that you disappear, you as you know yourself by whatever name, and the focus remains. You die, in a manner of speaking. And then, if in that state still, <laughs> if still, huh? then you're walking, and you're eating, and you're sitting, is the will of God. Your determination has its root in the will of God. <clears throat> you know, Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, <clears throat> And knowing what he was facing, <clears throat> take this cup from me, he prayed. And then he stopped. And then he said, no, thy will, thy will be done, not mine. Hmm? <clears throat> the will. This power this what we call will, see, is an experience. It is a direct experience. What we have is determination, rooted by that. So you can have the experience. I mean, you know, all you have to do is follow it back to its root. Hmm? Yeah. <clears throat> now, there are also, also, we're talking about there's three ways to go. There are two types of people, basically. Hmm? One either is, is uh, inclined toward going through the way of the heart, or one has a tendency to go through the head, through the mind. Uh, bhakti yoga and karma yoga are heart. And jnana yoga is the mind. 
Raja Yoga is the two in unity. Not going down here and up here and back and forth like that. It's in unity. No, no. Yeah. Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen basically are religions of the mind. There is in them, you will find, a very deep analysis of things around and other states. There is a very deep awareness, and there comes about a very deep enlightenment. So they say, no mind is the gate. We have, uh, you know, the practice of mindlessness, which doesn't mean willy-nilly, you know. It is practicing uh, holding the focus while you do anything so that your mind is not interfering with it, so that your thinking is not interfering with it. Hmm? In the other camp, we have the religions of the heart which are Judaism, Christianity, the Islam, and the Hinduism. And in this, we know it's especially, especially in Sufism, you know, the heart to be dissolved in the beloved, which is the divine. Then what comes out of that, of course, is the, the love, but that love also, like the will, is not mine, you know. It is the love of God flowing through me like the other is the will flowing through. These two powers, huh? Now, <clears throat> both ways, both camps, hold to a dying. You die. You die to the ego, to your, this self that would by whatever name you go. Hmm? There is uh, this, like, dying to the world, as it were. And uh, St. Paul says of this, <clears throat> we set aside, or we die to, the corruptible man for the incorruptible. Now, we can be maneuvered, and we can be manipulated. And so we do to ourselves and to others, which can be done to us. We are corruptible hmm? in this world. Yeah, we've got greed, and we will do things to, to make it nice. Mm -hmm. And greed is on many levels, many kinds of greed, many selfish things. You know, somebody comes and says, you know, can I talk to you for a while? Well, you don't really feel quite like it, you know, or you got something else you'd rather do, so you say, well, I can't right now. Selfishness. Very fine point, but, you know, selfishness. And then, of course, here comes the lust also, and what about all the rest of the seven deadly sins? Corruptible. We are corruptible. We corrupt ourselves, and others can corrupt us also. Hmm? Now, all of these things, none of these things, I should really say, apply to that which is incorruptible. You cannot woo it with wealth. 
You cannot woo it with good manners. You cannot woo it even with good humor. All humor is in there. It is an unconditioned. It has no pull toward any of these things. It is a clear, clean, true man. Incorruptible. And there's this true man of no rank hmm? going in and out the gates of your face. They, they watered that down considerably. Originally it was in that mass of red flesh. You know, we're, but we're kind of prissy. <laughs> in that mass of red flesh there is a true man coming and going. Who is that true man? Now the, uh, <clears throat> the man who is now the abbot at Mount Athos wrote, <clears throat> saying, the Lord didn't come into the world merely to make an improvement in our present conditions of life. Neither did he come to put forward an economic or a political system or to teach a method of arriving at a psychosomatic equilibrium. He came to conquer death. A monk is not someone who by employing certain forms of abstinence or certain techniques has arrived at a high degree of self-control or at various ascetic exploits. All of these achievements belonging to this present world, unimportant in themselves, are not capable of overcoming death. A true man, a true monk, is a man raised up in the resurrection. And his mission is not to effect something by his thoughts or to organize something by his own capacities, but by his life to give witness to the conquest of death. And this he does only by burying himself like a grain of wheat in the earth. Hmm? Yeah. You know, you plant a garden and you throw around some seeds and you water them and they break down and the new shoot rises. And he goes on to say, it is not my job to build houses or to whitewash them. Nor is it my job to read and to write. So what is my calling? It is, if possible, to die in God. Then I shall live 
and be moved by another power. Which, you know, this is what we also have in sin. Other, this power and other power. Yeah. Then, moving in another power, I can do all things freely. I can dig in the garden, I can organize, I can read, and I can write without being attached to anything. When you write in order to write, you are weaving your shroud. But when you live and breathe, seeking always the unknown, then an incorruptible garment is woven around you. Now, to cover all of that and to gain experience, you see, of it, in Zen, we have a koan. The master was breathing his last, and his attendant, who dearly loved him, you know, implored him, begged him, asked him, what could he do for him? What kind of burial? What additional services? What can I, anything, you know, last minute wish, what can I do for you? And the master turned around and looked at him and he lit up, you know, and he said, build for yourself a seamless pagoda for me. Now, <clears throat> our thinking mind, running through this mind, the mind which is, no matter how many thoughts are in it, is still pure. It's a pure mind. It's just that you can't see the purity for the thoughts. And the thoughts run through the mind uh, like a river. Maybe if they run fast enough, you can ignore them. Because, you know, see, then it's running too swiftly for us to pick and choose. We have tendencies, you know, we have, we're born with certain tendencies. Genes and chromosomes have given us certain tendencies. We like chocolate or we don't like chocolate. Very simple. <laughs> yeah, some people, you know, rob banks. That's their tendency. Some people abhor robbing banks. That's their tendency. We have tendencies toward, and we should watch them because they're, that's what motivates us to do or not to do. Huh? <clears throat> so with this psyche body, uh, so with the mind, this thinking, huh? with the thoughts, Mostly, we pick and choose what we think. Next time you say, I, I'm, I'm, I don't think these things, what's the matter with me? Or this thought is coming through, what's the matter with me? I'm not used to thinking things like this. Well, some little tendency certainly reared its ugly little head. Hmm? 
you can find out a great deal about yourself and your motivations and your tendencies toward by simply watching your thoughts. I mean, what kind are they? And you can't just sit there and say, but my thoughts are beautiful. I have beautiful thoughts. Huh? Maybe you're hiding behind all this beautiful thought. Hmm? We have identification with certain thoughts. We are attached to certain thoughts. How often, when these thoughts roll by, do you ask yourself, where did this come from? Where is it going? Where do these thoughts go? Hmm? And you can, uh, if you wish, you can sort of liken it to a movie. There's a screen and the projector and all that stuff. And the pictures run by, all these frames, you know. And uh, you see one that looks familiar. Oh, hey, stop. I know that one. Oh, you see the nice trap we're in? And the frame stops. And you look at it, you eye it well, and it's like a cracker held in the pond. And one fish comes, and then all the fish to associate with it until the cracker is gone. Your interest in it, it drops. The whole thing drops. Hmm? <clears throat> so uh, by picking and by choosing, that is by your thinking, hmm, uh, you cooperate with this process, this function of thinking. You're cooperating with it all the time. <clears throat> so now people ask all the time, well, what can I do when I'm sitting to stop thinking? Withdraw your cooperation. Don't try to stop the thinking. You can't. It's like trying to tell the lungs not to breathe or the heart not to pump. You don't want to be dead. You want to be alive in this thing. So just withdraw the cooperation with it. If you try to stop thinking with one hand and you're at the same time you're giving life to the thoughts through your cooperation. It's kind of like driving a car with one foot on the gas and one foot on the, the, the brake. You can't do both. Hmm? No. You can ignore thinking. You know it's there, but you can ignore it so you don't get involved in it. This is withdrawing. Or you can sit there and observe it and observe it and observe it until you become the subject, and the thoughts now are the objects. See, then, this is vipassana meditation, then the trick is to turn around and find out what this subject is like. What is this subject? What is viewing the objects? Hmm? And just remember that a thought, no matter how beautiful it is, is a thought. 
is it, it's a thought. And that through our desires and our discriminations and our choices, our likes and dislikes, we keep that whole wheel moving. This thinking mind learns by rote. It memorizes. It keeps adding on. It is a memory. The words that we use are memory. We don't have to stop and, and think every time. Gee, I wonder what's the word for that. I wonder what's the word for that. I wonder what's the word for that. We've memorized them. We've used them over and over and over. We no longer even think about it. It just comes out. Hmm? Yeah. <clears throat> Memory. Everything that happened in the past. All our yesterdays. The words that I just said are past. That's memory. The thing, though, is that truth is not the past. It's not a memory. It's always new, always now. So now we have a question. How are these, these two, the new and the old, how are they to meet? The new truth, the unknown truth, and memory. How are you going to have these meet? Now, if you're thinking about the truth, that's past. Because even if you're thinking about the future, that's still past. <clears throat> you know, it's the past ideas, past thoughts, trying to create a future which is not. So you're speculating. Mind is the known. Your thoughts are known. This is what you know in this world. It's phenomenal. Hmm? Truth is the unknown. Mind is a record of what has happened. Truth is the adventure. When we always say that truth is not a philosophy, because a philosophy is some kind of a doctrine about the truth. It's an interpretation, and it's an explanation. Uh, the word originally, of course, we know meant love of wisdom, philosophy. But in these times, you know, I read about it. You read, pick up a magazine, and there's something about it. And uh, you turn on the television, and you hear about it. 
philosophy has become ethics and morals. It's not philosophy. It is no longer the love of wisdom. And so, you know, this Arthur Bloom, he wrote this book, The Closing of the Mind of America. Hmm? That which we are here seeking, and at least I hope you are, is an encounter with truth. See? An encounter with reality. A direct encounter. That truth that is viewed from the top of the mountain has no doctrine, has no philosophy, and has no scripture. It is simply a direct encounter. Now, in order to have such an experience, we have got to get, we, the ego, hmm? me, Lola, has got to get out of the way. And as a society goes, this is very difficult. If I'm out of the way, then there is this not knowing that is present. Lola is the one that knows this phenomenal world. If I'm not there, there is a position of not knowing. And this is extremely difficult to maintain, to say the least. Huh? <clears throat> Not only is it difficult in itself, but we have this ego thing, you know. We feel that our ignorance, our not knowing, is very ego-shattering. We think of it that way. I don't think you'd think of it that way, though, if you experienced it as not knowing. Hmm? But ego doesn't want this not knowing. So we create doctrines and philosophies which give us the illusion that we know. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I read a book and I say, oh yes, I, I agree with this and I agree with that and I agree with the other thing. Huh. Who is this I that agrees? Yeah. Now, Zen, be it Eastern, be it Western, be it Oriental, or be it Christian, <coughs> or Catholic, or whatever, wherever you want to put it, is a way of knowing. Of itself, this is Zen, of itself, it has no knowledge. <laughs> But oh, what you will learn when you practice and you have experience of it. Huh? It is a method of knowing, a methodology to know. It is uh, <clears throat> what they call an upaya. It is a means to, hmm? a means to face what is. A means to meet what is. And that meeting is immediate and direct 
and exactly what is. And that's why we have the confrontation. So you don't sit there and delude yourselves further. I have had such an experience and mm, boy. In the confrontation, you do not come to see me. You do not come to impart to me how much you know or how little you know. You come to give yourself an answer. You are confronting yourself, actually. I'm just in a role of past night. I'm a barrier. When you describe a valid experience, past not's gone. Until that time, you do not, the corruptible does not enter the incorruptible, if we can use St. Paul's terms. Huh? <clears throat> Clemenceau, he was a French diplomat. You remember him? No, no, you don't. Maybe some of you do. He was asked by a diplomat what he thought about diplomats, you know, and he answered, diplomats are people that solve problems that have been created by other diplomats. <laughs> yeah. Mind, and you watch it, mind creates problems. Mm -hmm. And then the mind tries to solve the problems. Yeah. Now Zen drops out of this game, because it is a game. Zen is not a mind game. It is a way to a direct encounter. And remember what you're dealing with. You are dealing with yourself. Always you are dealing with yourself. You are dealing with your conditioning. You are dealing with your ego. And once you have conquered these, then you're dealing with the, what is called sometimes the real self. And when you have dealt with that, then there is the no self. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you very frankly, I feel so lucky that I found this method. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on out there. I have, as uh, some of you know, a uh, rather odd sense of humor. It can be rather dry, and it can be rather subtle. Some of you catch on right away, and some of you catch on five years later, or somewhere in between. <laughs> huh? But I intended to be funny, or humor in it. So keep it in mind. And because so many of you have asked, and it keeps repeating itself and repeating itself, the ego being such a problem, how did we get stuck with it? Hmm? How did we develop it? How did it grab such a hold of us? Hmm? Well, having denigrated philosophy and frowned upon it and so on and so on, 
Let us philosophize. <laughs> well, that's what it is, huh? Explanations. Yeah. It's like trying to put the ocean in a well. Yeah. It's like trying to put the truth into words. It's trying to put the limitless in the limitless, in the limited. The thing is, you see, with words, here we come. The ocean, to put the ocean in the well, we know we can't do that. To put the truth in words, we know we can't do that. But the limitless and the limited, look at all of you. Exactly. The limitless is in the limited. Your thinking mind is limited. But there is that other. What you are seeking is not far away. The limitless is in the limited. Yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> uh, there are a lot of people that do not have a mental structure that they know of. I, it's so vague to them that, you know, they don't know about. Mental structure, you can have several. Um, it has been a practice in the past, you know, to develop a whole mental structure. And sometimes I'll do it on a Sunday. Develop a whole mental structure, and then at the end, take it away. So that you're not stuck with it. Don't let yourself get stuck with any mental structure. Flow. Be free. Hmm? If you're caught in a mental structure, that's where you're just you're going to sit there in that mental structure, with a roof over your head, and a cement under your feet, so that you can't go down and you can't go up. All you can do is get fat, <laughs> sideways. Yeah. <clears throat> Some people do not have a very strong mental structure, and uh, you know, I people say to me, you know. It, what you say sounds so rational and everything, but after I leave and somebody asks me, what did she say? I don't know. It's because I have not said, this is the way it is. The only thing you can say that about is the way that it is. Anything else, you take it and you let it go. And you take it and you let it go. And you take it and you let it go. So the people say, well, I don't really know what she teaches. What do you believe? Well, I, I don't really know. Huh? Real good. <clears throat> anyway, many people, they don't have this mental structure, so they don't know whereabouts they're at, and they want one. Not knowing where you're at, that's pretty good. <clears throat> Others have a mental structure, and know damn well where they're at. <laughs> and for these, you know, you have to feel a little sorry because they're clinging. <clears throat> Build them, tear them down. Build them up, tear them down. And the scraps you leave behind also. Don't think, well, I, I like this one, this thought over here. I think I'll just take it with me. You know, I'll keep it for a new structure. That's a no-no. When the mental structure goes, it goes. Hmm? Let it all go. It isn't going to do you any good in the long run anyway. Right. Now, there are several views into which several mental 
structures into which we can place ourselves, these different concepts of what we are. So there is, uh, to begin with, the, the vitalist theory, the vitalist philosophy of Claudius, which um, <clears throat> is referred to as the body-soul unity concept. Body-soul unity. So it's monistic. Body and soul are one. It's one. It's a monistic point of view. <clears throat> However, it remains a physical and scientific point of view that is a psychological point of view. Yeah? The body, then, is the expression <clears throat> or the representation of the, of the psyche. The, you know, the, it is the Ausdruck. It is the impression of the, the, that which is coming through, that which seeps through, is, represents, then, this. Hmm. And the psyche, then, is the sense of the body, or this, what they call sin, S-I-N-N, sin, mind, the mind of the body is the psyche, and the body is the ausdruck, the representation of the, the psyche. Then, see, now that's unity, uh, that's one, hmm? one, it's a monistic point of view. Then we have a point of view that the person is composed of body and soul. See? Body plus soul. This is a body plus a soul. And this is the conventional dualistic concept of the Western world. It's two. It's matter and spirit. Two. Hmm? Set that one aside for sure. <laughs> huh? <clears throat> then we have a, a, a concept that comes to us from uh, in the pre-Greek times, pre-Christian Greek concepts, uh, that the person is the mask, that is, he is the persona, the sounding through. And we have the psyche sounding through a mask. In Latin, you know, the, the psyche is called the anima, the livingness, and the anima or animus. And when you find a very uh, domineering woman, you call her an ego animus, the animosity that comes out of it from this. This is, anyway. Anyway, at the beginning it says in, in, in the Bible, in, in, you know, that God created Adam out of the red clay. And then he created Eve out of his rib. Because he had created Lilith before and she turned out to be no good, so he had to have another wife. Uh, so we have anyway now Adam and Eve, which the words are Jave, Earth and its livingness. Then we have a, a Judeo-Christian theological concept that uh, man is a trinity. He is a body and a soul and a spirit. The soma, the psyche, and the pneuma. P-N-E-U-M-A, spirit. Right? In scholastic theology, 
we find an elaboration of this concept and that's derived, this concept that is derived from the Judeo-Christian. We have the body, we have the sentient soul, and in Hebrew they call it the nefesh, which is the animal soul. It's the instincts, nefesh. Hmm? And we have the rational soul, which is the reasoning intellect, which in this system they call the nous. N-O-U-S is the mind, rational. And if you read Plato or Aristotle or in those people in there, they talk about the noose and that the rational or the reason is above everything. This is what they're talking about. And then we have the spiritual soul, which is the ruach in Hebrew. This is a pneuma again, is the spirit. So this is a fourfold division, soma, psyche, noose, and pneuma, pneuma. Okay. Now, it is possible, I'm going somewhere with this, you know, no matter how bored you are. <laughs> I mean, you might as well have the background, otherwise you don't understand the end, do you? I mean, as long as I'm going to philosophize, let me do it. <laughs> it is possible to differentiate between the somatic psyche which then is called the lower psyche and the instinctual, the, the lower psyche, instinctual psyche, huh? and the pneumatic, pneumatic, or the spiritual psyche, or the higher psyche. So we have a lower psyche and a higher psyche. Hmm? Yeah. The higher psyche reflects the noose. Now, noose is used differently in this instance now. The higher psyche reflects the noose which is regarded as a faculty and sometimes identified with the panuma. Mm -hmm. The lower mind, that is our thinking mind, is regarded as a state of functioning between the lower and higher psyche. So now we have this five-fold structure. We've got a body and a psyche and a lower mind and a higher psyche and a higher mind. You know, this, this phrase that comes along in general semantics, keep your levels sharply differentiated. When someone is using certain terms, be sure you know what mental structure they're talking about. Hmm? Yeah. Now, for a long time, in our practice of the Zazen, uh, the light, the word, the word, the logos, hmm, is reflected in the noose. So when you first see the light within yourself, it is a reflected light. It is reflected in the higher mind. And that in turn is reflected in the psyche. This is what you see. The psyche reflects. The psyche reflects. Now, those are five mental structures that you can elaborate on and make your choice as to which one you like. <clears throat> Maybe you have heard 
about one more than you have heard about others, so you just stay with it. <clears throat> If you find Lola's talks valuable, more will be posted in weeks to come.